the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. do you know me? Okay, he's a little caught off guard by this. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. I saw you, Nathaniel. I saw you sitting over there underneath the tree. I know you. Now, this is, this has got to be a little freaky. You know what I'm saying? Because when Jesus looks right at him, he's like, I know you. And there's nothing deceptive in you. You're the pure thing. You're the real deal. I wonder if Jesus were to see you or me sitting under a tree, what would he think? In today's message, Jesus will continue meeting and selecting his followers, and you'll be introduced to Nathaniel. This man didn't quite believe at first, but had an interesting encounter with Jesus that changed his mind. Jesus said he knew Nathaniel. He saw him before their encounter, And Jesus knew things that only the Son of God could know. Now, Pastor Gary wants you to think about that. What does Jesus know about you that you've tried to keep secret? He sees it all. There's no point in hiding your sins. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John, chapter 1, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Well, we left off last week in John's Gospel, chapter 1, right after verse 34. The backdrop here is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John spends some significant time representing Christ as the Word, logos, in the Greek, Uh, The Greek scholars and philosophers of the day would use the word logos to define this undefinable, divine, intellectual something behind the universe. And John steps up and says, all right, you've been talking about the word logos for centuries, all of the Greek scholars and philosophers. Let me put a name to logos, that logos, the word that became flesh, that indefinable, intelligent being behind the universe is none other than Jesus Christ himself, God in flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten, the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what he says there in verse 14. And then John the Baptist comes onto the scene here, starting at verse 19. John the Baptist is the one who makes way, makes the way ready for Jesus so that people would be receptive to him. So John the Baptist 
who uh, goes around then baptizing by water. That's why he's called John the Baptist. Baptizing by water people, not as an expression of their salvation in Christ, because Jesus has not even come onto the world senior in public ministry, let alone died for the sins of the world. But this baptism was a water baptism for people to identify their need looking forward to Messiah. Much in the same way now, we are baptized looking back to the cross because of our faith and relationship in Messiah. So these people that John was baptizing were anticipating the Messiah. Well, in one of these occasions, as John is baptizing, here comes Jesus himself. And John, knowing by divine revelation, this is in fact the Christ, this is in fact the Messiah, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is in verse 29. And so in verse 35, this is where we left off, it says, the next day, John, this is still John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, and he repeats again this title for Jesus, Look, the Lamb of God. These are the only two times in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb. Here in this verse, verse 36, and then previously from last week's study in verse 29. Only two times in the four Gospels. Although I mentioned last week that when you get to the book of Revelation, that title for Jesus, the Lamb, is used 30 times in the book of Revelation. It is the most used title in reference to Jesus because he wants to be seen as the suffering Savior who gave his life for the sins of the world. So although he is judge... He doesn't opt for that title in the book of Revelation. Although he is mighty, he doesn't opt for that. Although he is sovereign, he doesn't opt for that. The title that he uses most than any other title in the book of Revelation, even though it is this book with all of this cataclysmic, you know, all of these events that happen at the end of the age, he still wants to be known and understood as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The one who died on the cross, the perfect sacrifice, the fulfillment of that sacrificial system... The idea that Jesus is referred to as a lamb might seem odd, except if you understand that the whole sacrificial system, the Old Testament, was built upon the sacrifice of animals as the only way to atone for sin. All of that was pointing to the one final sacrifice who would be sufficient for the sins of the whole world, and that is Jesus. And so John the Baptist identifies him as that one who will lay down his life for the sins of the world. And it says here in verse 37 that when the two disciples heard him say this, Okay, now these are two of John the Baptist's disciples. We're going to find one of them named here in a minute. Leaders of the day had their own kind of followers. So John the Baptist has his own disciples who followed him. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked. Now, what's the inflection of his voice here, okay? What do you want? Or, what do you want? Yeah, well, of course it's not the latter. That's not the disposition of Jesus. You know, he sees people falling. Oh, what do you people want? No, he's, he's, this is a way of saying, you know, who, in fact, King James says, what do you seek? Okay, what are you really looking for? That's what he asks them. And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Now, That would be 4 p.m. And Andrew, verse 40, here we find out who one of these two disciples of John the Baptist are who are now going to no longer really follow John the Baptist. They're going to turn and follow Jesus. One of them here named is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did 
was to find his brother Simon, that's Simon Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, there are a couple of occasions when Andrew is mentioned in the Gospels, and, and both times he is mentioned, he's always bringing people to Jesus. So he's really good at that, and that's a good thing. We should be a little bit like Andrew. We should be bringing people to Jesus. But I want you to notice, Andrew's brother is Simon Peter. Now, Simon Peter is the one, Matthew 16 records it in most detail, when Jesus goes up to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and he uses that backdrop to ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? What is the talk on the street about who my identity is? And they all say to him, well, some say Jeremiah, and some say Elijah. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him, well, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, right? And a lot of times people look at Matthew 16 and this great profession of faith of Peter and say, Peter was the first one who recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Not really. It was Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. Andrew's the first one who says, we have found the Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrews, where we get our English word Messiah. It's the same word in the Greek, Christos, which translates into English Christ. Both those terms, Messiah and Christ, mean anointed one. This is the one that was prophesied in Scripture. And it says in verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him, looking at Simon Peter, and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So there's, there's a few different languages going on here, and it's all transliterated into English. So Simon is a Hebrew given name, Shimon, meaning to hear. And then Jesus says, your name will be Cephas. It's actually pronounced in Aramaic. Now we have an Aramaic term, Kepha, which translates Petros, or Peter in English. So you have the Hebrew given name, Shimon, Simon. You have then an Aramaic name that Jesus gives him, Kepha, which in Greek translates to Peter. But those names, Kepha and Peter, mean rock. It means little rock, but it means rock. It's interesting because what Jesus is doing here is he's looking into the eyes of Peter. And he says, all right, I know that your name means Shimon to hear, but you actually are going to be a rock, that he sees a quality and character about Peter that is strong. Now, it, he's not the rock upon which Christ builds the church. That's a whole other Bible study for Matthew 16, okay? He's a little rock. Jesus then turns and says, upon this rock in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And he actually changes gender in the Greek. He goes from Petros to Petra, and he speaks of the church and the larger profession of Peter's mouth, which is that Jesus is the Christ. That's what Jesus builds the church upon. Not a person, not Peter, but nevertheless, he sees in Peter, there's something strong in Peter. There's something valiant about Peter. And Jesus looks at him and says, no longer will you be called Simon. You're going to be called Kepha in Aramaic or Peter is the Greek and the English transliteration. So he changes his name there, gives him kind of a nickname. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. So now he's, he's starting to accumulate here some of his own disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, those guys are brothers. Now he comes to Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida 
And so you have these three guys, Andrew, Peter, Philip. Andrew and Peter are brothers, but all three of them are from the town of Bethsaida. Bethsaida in Hebrew translates house, bait, Saida, house of the fishermen. So Bethsaida was a fishing village located along the Jordan River as it enters into the Sea of Galilee. That's where these three guys lived, which is an indication of, no doubt, their livelihood. They're fishermen. And so Jesus sees Philip, says, hey, follow me. It says in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Okay, so what does Philip do? Philip goes, finds Nathanael. Now, Nathanael in Hebrew translates gift of God. But in all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Nathanael is believed to be Bartholomew, because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use the name Bartholomew, which is believed to be the surname of Nathanael. So we're talking the same person. Bartholomew, when you look at the list of Jesus' disciples, you see Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have the name Bartholomew. John opts to use the name Nathanael. We're talking the same person. And so Philip then finds Nathanael, says to him, hey, Nate, we have found the one whom Jesus... I'm just always friends with these guys in the Bible. But he says, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. Look, all of the Old Testament, the scriptures testify to the Messiah. And Nathanael now realizes this is the one that Moses wrote about, although Philip kind of uses and has an incomplete view of Jesus because he says he's the son of Joseph where he really, you know, should be saying the son of God, but he'll come into that understanding later. Jesus is going to turn to Philip in John's gospel further, and he's going to say, you know, I'm going to show you the way, and Philip says, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you for so long? And you still do not know. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that's going to be a later conversation. So Philip is a little slow at first. He's going to eventually get it. But he brings Nathaniel into the mix, But notice Nathanael's reaction in verse 46. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Or if you have a King James Bible, it says, In whom is no guile. And it can be translated, no deception. There's no deception. Now, Nathaniel's first impression is about anybody coming from Nazareth. You know, what good can come out of Nazareth? In Jesus' day, Nazareth was a small village, maybe had 100 people. So his perception was nobody great comes out of Nazareth. And so as he's strutting along, he's like, well, I'm going to check this guy out, Phil. All right, let me go see him. And as he sees Jesus and Jesus sees him approaching, Jesus says, well, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. There's no guile. There's nothing deceptive in this guy. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Okay, he's a little caught off guard by this. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. I saw you, Nathaniel. I saw you sitting over there underneath the tree. I know you. Now, this is... This has got to be a little freaky. You know what I'm saying? Because when Jesus looks right at him, he's like, I know you. And there's nothing deceptive in you. You're the pure thing. You're the real deal. I wonder if Jesus were to see you or me sitting under a tree, what would he think of you or me? Right? Now, you answer for yourself. Don't answer for me. I'll answer for me. Thank you very much. But you answer for yourself. Like, what would Jesus say of me? 
You know, would he, would he say this about me or, or would he say other things? Not so endearing, maybe. But about Nathaniel, it says there's nothing false in you. There's nothing de- deceptive. And then it says in verse 49, Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You know, you tell me a few things about me. I know now you are the son of God. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. And he then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, he's referring to a story and a vision, a dream, that Jacob had back in Genesis 28. Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're going to see bigger and better things than this. Just because I've discerned something about your heart is is not the full extent of who I am and, and what I'm about. And then he makes reference here to this dream that Jacob has. Now, some Bible scholars believe that In fact, maybe Nathaniel, when he was under the tree, was reading from the scroll of the law of Moses and the story of Genesis 28 because Jesus is referencing this almost like out of the blue. Maybe it's not out of the blue. Maybe Nathaniel was reading this story and Jesus is then interpreting it for him. And in Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream about this ladder or this stairway to heaven. Not Led Zeppelin, don't go backwards. (laughs) Stay with me. And Jacob, in this dream, sees angels. Now, notice the order, ascending and descending. A lot of times we think about angels all up in heaven descending down, and then they got to go back up. But the order of the dream, and Jesus even reiterates it here, he says, the angels of God ascending and descending, reminding us that the ministry of angels are ongoing, not just in heaven, around the throne of God, which we see in Scripture, but they also have been dispatched as messengers here on earth to be of service to the Lord. So they're here and there. But the connection between heaven and earth, the ladder, the stairway, is the Lord Jesus himself. The one who closes the chasm, the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity on earth is Jesus. The vision that Jacob has there in Genesis 28 is none other than a type of a picture, a figure of Jesus Christ. That he is the one who bridges the gap between heaven and earth. And Jesus is in essence saying to Nathaniel, you're going to see more amazing things than, than just that I've discerned your heart. You're going to recognize that I am the one who bridges the gap between heaven and earth. I am, in fact, the ladder. I am the one who is the Son of Man, ascending, descending, even as the angels did. That bridge that uh, bridges the gap between heaven and earth. I am that stairway to heaven. So now we've got four followers here. We've got Andrew. We've got Peter, his brother. We've got Philip. We've got Nathaniel. And now into chapter 2, it says, On the third day... And I will tell you that no one seems to know what that refers to. What third day? Third day of what? There's no other reference point to what the third day might be referring to. But on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Let me just read the story and then we'll come back and talk about it. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman... Why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Okay, so John tells us this was the first of the miracles of Jesus. Now, for you note-takers, there are recorded, without duplication, between the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about 36 miracles that Jesus performed. There are about 36 miracles that Jesus performed. Now, his ministry covers about three and a half years. So, 36 months, three years, 36 miracles. Jesus recorded, okay, recorded only, performed about on average one miracle a month. But we know that he performed many more than that because John at the end of his gospel said he performed so many things. There's so many things that Jesus did, they can't even be recorded in the volume of the book. And in fact, it talks here in terms of miracles, and even though Jesus did many miracles, John only records eight. Eight miracles. But out of the eight, six miracles are unique to the Gospel of John, and this is one of them. None of the other Gospels record Jesus turning water into wine. But this is the first miracle that he performs here. It is located, the miracle occurs, at a wedding that is taking place in the town of Cana. Now, Cana is located in the province of Galilee. That's why it's called Cana of Galilee. Further in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 21, it tells us that Nathan, Nathaniel, the guy who was, you know, now becomes a follower of Jesus from the previous chapter, Nathaniel is from Cana. This is his hometown. Is there a connection here? We don't know. It, it, you know, chapter 1 ends with this whole thing with Nathaniel. Maybe Nathaniel's like, you need to come to my hometown. Maybe. We don't know. But Jesus is now in Cana of Galilee. Cana is located about five miles north of Nazareth. Cana is about 25 miles west of Capernaum, where Jesus is going to mainly be based in his, in his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. About 25 miles west of Capernaum, about five miles north of Nazareth. And so here is this occasion. Now, a wedding feast in Israel among the Jewish people would take place over seven days. Okay, they knew how to celebrate a wedding, friends. All right? It's not just you exchange your vows and then that night you have a reception and you get out the dance floor and you have some, you know, DJ who often isn't the best and, you know, and, and then you got some dance floor going thing and people are eating and, and drinking and they're cutting cake and all that kind of stuff and then they go home. That's the way we do it, all right? But not the Jewish people. The Jewish people, seven days. They're going to celebrate this wedding like nobody's business. Well, what happens is, during the period of the wedding feast, they run out of wine. And so Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is an interesting dynamic that occurs here. Because first of all, I want you to know how Mary, she intimates here, okay, like only a mother can. <laughs> she doesn't come right out and say, 
they have no more wine. Jesus, you need to get some wine for us. You know, do some miraculous stuff here because we need some wine going again. And these days, you need to understand, in this culture, if you ran out of wine and you were the party that was hosting the feast, if you ran out of wine, it was scandalous. You were considered a social outcast because it was very rude to run out of wine or food for your dinner guests. They would think the lowest of you. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human, but he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know